My name is Srina Gandhi. I'm part of the program committee here at the American Academy of Religion. I also am part of the Religious Studies Department at Michigan State. Uh, this panel uh, called Religion on Television, Production Positives and Perils Slash Pitfalls was sponsored by the AAR Program Committee and the AAR Public Understanding of Religion Committee and it's on the different approaches scholars of religion are taking in presenting religion and the study of religion to a wider audience on television. All four of our discussants today are public intellectuals that have had experience being on television in a variety of forums and are working on television shows and documentaries that present religion to a wider audience beyond the academy. And I think this is particularly important given the AAR's new initiative regarding the public understanding of religion. So first we have Reza Aslan, there he is, professor of creative writing at UC Riverside who has written numerous books and his latest, God, Human History, examines the history of the human impulse to humanize God. He has quite a bit of experience in regards to the topic of religion on television, beyond appearing on and sometimes making the news. Reza has been involved in numerous television shows including The Leftovers, Rough Draft with Reza Aslan of Kings and Prophets, as well as two documentary series, uh, Believer and the Secret Life of Muslims. Amir Hussein is right there. Uh, he's a professor of theological studies at Loyola Marymount University. His most recent book is Muslims and the Making of America, which makes an argument about the fundamental part that Muslims have and still play in the formation of the US religious landscape. He has also written on the misrepresentations of Muslims in North American television shows. Amir is an advisor for the television series The Story of God with Morgan Freeman. Candida Moss, right there. She is the Edward Cadbury Professor of Theology at the University of Birmingham. Her most recent book, co-authored with Joel Baden, Bible Nation, the United States of Hobby Lobby, follows the world of the Green family as they embark on the opening of their Bible Museum in Washington, DC. Candida has written and commented for numerous media outlets, including CBS News, The Daily Beast, CNN, BBC, National Geographic, Smithsonian, Discovery Channel, and the History Channel. She was also involved in the documentary series, Finding Jesus, and was an academic consultant for the television series, The Bible. Stephen Prothrow uh, is the C. Allen and Elizabeth V. Russell Professor of Religion at Boston University. His most recent book, Why Liberals Win the Culture Wars Even When They Lose Elections, hope for the current state of things, I hope. Uh, examines various culture wars through U.S. history and shows how they start out as, con as conservative reaction but end with a liberal victory. He has written for the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, the New York Times, Slate, Salon, the Washington Post, and the Boston Globe, and he has appeared on NPR, The Colbert Report, The Daily Show, The Oprah Winfrey Show, The O'Reilly Factor, and The Today Show. Further, he was the chief academic advisor for the documentary series God in America. The goal of this panel is to generate a robust discussion during which the panelists will respond to some preliminary, preliminary questions, but will also take questions from each other and the audience. Through this discussion, we hope to give insight into the complicated processes of presenting religion for a wider audience, but also think through the role of religious studies scholars during these times when religions are often demonized, exoticized, misappropriated, misrepresented, and misunderstood in the media and popular culture. I have some questions which I have already shared with the panelists. We'll go through each of the questions and give discussants a chance to answer. And then at the end, we'll have time for questions and input from the audience. So the first question, which I'll pose to all four of you, is what were your hopes and expectations and what challenges did you face and what lessons did you learn 
in the process of producing these programs for a general, often non-academic audience. Further, what was the reception, both po popular and scholarly, of your program, and what changes would you make if you had the chance slash moving forward? So I'm not sure whoever wants to start first. I'll uh, let you guys uh, decide. So did you say you wanted me to start first? Oh, sure. sure. Yes, yes, Reza, why don't you start, start first? Yeah, okay, all I see is a white, uh, it's a white poster, so you got to tell me when you want me to talk. Okay, um, yeah. Um, you know, my motivations are pretty simple, and they're very much in line with what your opening comments um, were, which is that I'm interested in bringing the kinds of issues and conversations and debates that we have in academia to a larger audience. I mean, most of us uh, in this room, I'm sure, have decided to spend our lives studying um, religion and religions of the world because we found them to be interesting. And I'm convinced that there's a way for us to translate our work to a popular audience, make it accessible and entertaining, they'll find it interesting too. And I think that uh, there's plenty of reason to believe that that's precisely what happened. There is a real um, thirst for um, religious literacy in this country, which is unquestionably the most religious country in the developed world. And who else to um, answer that but we who spend our lives studying religion. So uh, uh, let me uh, jump in there. So I'm someone who both is a, a Muslim, a scholar of Islam. I live in Los Angeles, and so you get, I was saying to Canada, I mean, that, that's the industry sort of there. So you sort of get brought into things in interesting ways. So a decade ago, uh, I was asked to uh, be involved in a show that Nancy Miller was the showrunner, the, the creator of, called uh, Saving Grace with Holly Hunter, sort of three-year uh, show on TNT, where you could deal with this idea of religion in Holly's character. Grace Hanadarko was this uh, uh, detective who had some issues, as sometimes detectives do. But it was set in Oklahoma City, where Nancy was from, and so after the Oklahoma City bombing, you know, perceptions of Muslims, that kind of stuff. And so it was great to be able to work on that show and talk about sort of space of religion. We did a great episode where one of the characters' brothers is killed in Iraq, and we we're showing like the funeral and the flight home and the coffin draped, you know, casket and all that kind of stuff. And I caught myself thinking like, you can't see this on the real news because we don't do that, but you can see it on this fake television show. So, so there's that part. Part of it, you know, uh, I worked for the last uh, year and a half with uh, Morgan Freeman. Uh, his own production company, Revelations, did the story of God with Morgan Freeman, which has gotten really good uh, uh, press. It was done through National Geographic. I was one of the people that was sort of a panel of consultants to do the religion stuff, so they would send us the rough takes, the, the rough cuts, excuse me, the scripts. Minor changes here and there. Uh, they had me film for one of the uh, the panels. I don't have, you know, Reza's hair, but they still wanted me on uh, television uh, there. So it was great to be, you know, on that kind of thing. But but with Mr. Freeman, it's his own production company, Revelations. And so part of it is, you know, uh, uh, what sort of connection do you have? And he did this series himself. He, and this goes straight to the public understanding of religion, he started thinking about this when, um, you know, he plays a number of, of, of characters, including Lucius Ford in the Batman, uh, Chris Nolan films, and they were filming something in Turkey several years ago, and he had sort of a day off, and he was at Hagia Sophia, and getting a tour with Laurie McCreary, who's his partner in, in Revelations, and 
you know, they're sort of showing him around, and there's the, the dome, and there's the image of Jesus and Mary in the mosaic. And he says to the tour guide, excuse me, I, I thought you said that this was, you know, I know this was built as a church, but I thought you said it would be, become a mosque. Oh, yes, it has. Well, why does the mosque have an image of Jesus and Mary? And the tour guide was, well, because Jesus and Mary are important for Muslims. And Mr. Freeman sort of paused and said, I did not know that, you know. And if I don't know that, there's probably a lot of people that don't know that. And that's how he got interested in doing this kind of thing. And so what I loved about that show, and this goes to the hopes and expectations, is that we were able to do it in a really interesting way, looking at different traditions, talking about the diversity within and among traditions, not just saying that here's how religions look at creation, because some religions have very different ideas. Here's how religions look at this, different ideas. And so real delight there. But that was because it was his own company, and he was you know, in, in charge of doing this, did the research, did the work uh, there. First of all, thank you so much, Trina, for having me. It's nice to be here uh, with you. This is working, right? Uh, no, this isn't? OK. Uh, and um, it's lovely to be here with Reza in Canada and Amir. Um, so um, thanks for including me in the conversation. Um, the God in America uh, project that I worked on uh, with PBS and WGBH um, started actually in 2005. I think the impulse was, 9-11, uh, and some folks at WGBH convened a group of 16 uh, scholars and religion journalists. Um, there might have been some members of religious communities there as well. And they just posed a question, what can we do on TV uh, about religion, about educating Americans about uh, religion? And the language that emerged from that was this religious literacy language, and we should do some things on TV that would uh, promote religious literacy in the United States while entertaining um, uh, people with the stories that that we can tell. And so out of that came a few projects. Uh, one was a documentary on Amy Semple McPherson, uh, the early Pentecostal phenom uh, from uh, Los Angeles. Uh, but another was this six-hour God in America television series, which tried to tell 400 years of uh, American religious history in six hours. Uh, on, on PBS, and so the hope was, I've just expressed, the challenge was, I've already expressed as well, six hours uh, for 400 years. I'm not sure what that ratio is, but it's, it's high or it's low. Um, and so um, one of the things that we did, and I was the chief academic consultant to a group of, I thought, very talented uh, producers and directors, was to try to think about how to tell 18 stories because we had an hour each and we had 20-minute segments. And so um, if I'm doing the math right, that's 18 segments. And so there was really the problem of cutting. You know, what, what do you want to highlight? And you have to choose. When you choose one, you are not choosing the other. It's a zero-sum game problem. Uh, and that is very interesting, I, I think, and it presents an intellectual uh, challenge to, to scholars uh, to try to figure out what is a smart and responsible and entertaining way to make that decision to turn 400 years into 18, uh, 18 moments. And I think it's something that we don't typically do. We do, in the classroom, have to also make choices. We only have a certain number of classes, and so we we get to that point where we're, we're going to take out one subject, we're going to uh, be able to put in another. 
Um, but I found that really fascinating. Um, another thing I found fascinating intellectually was the kinds of questions that these media folks asked were so different from the kinds of questions my fellow scholars asked, and in many cases they were equally interesting. Um, one of them was, uh, I, I think this was, I can't remember, it might have been our hour four, which focused on the late 19th century post-Civil War, ended up doing the uh, Treffa banquet um, uh, with Isaac uh, Mayer Wise and uh, the rise of Reform Judaism and uh, the Scopes trial and battles over higher criticism of the late 19th century. And the question that was posed was, what's the word for this hour? And I just loved that question. It's something you could never ask. Like, no academics would ever be sitting around the AAR saying, you know, what's the word that would express religion in America from 1865 to 1912? You know, we just wouldn't do that. But it's actually an interesting problem. And it's so easy to say that's a stupid question or, you know, you know but, but it's not. Um, and so another challenge I, I think uh, this points to is a kind of challenge of compression and generalization. And I'm really interested in this uh, myself because I think that in the academy, what we're, we're really rewarded for when we write a dissertation is for making a special contribution to a field. And so the way you do it is by doing something even more specific than the last thing that someone <laughs> did, right? So if there's a, if there's a scholarship on, on you know, monasteries in uh, northern France in the 13th century, then you could do a dissertation on, you know, monasteries in northeastern France in the late 13th century um, with a focus only on nunneries rather than on monasticism more broadly. And that um, is what then you're rewarded for, and then that, this is the way we kind of are trained to think. But when you want to do a television show, uh, you have to think in a different manner and you need to compress things, and that opens you up to criticisms of overgeneralization, um, et cetera. So let me say one thing about reception and then to, to try to respond fully to the question, and then I'll, I'll, I'll finish. Um, the reception of the God in America TV series was, I think, utterly and totally predictable. And in fact, we talked about it, uh, folks of us who worked on it before it happened. One was that it was very widely reviewed and well-received um, in magazines and newspapers and by the general public. The traffic to the website was really strong. Um, in fact, uh, it broke a record for a single day for uh, WGBH. Um, and then the reviews were great. And then the scholarly critiques were that it was simplistic, um, that it was, it left things out, um, not enough Catholics, not enough Jews, not enough Buddhists, not enough Hindus, not enough Muslims, um, not enough attention to race, class, and gender, um, horrible overlooking of Roger Williams. How could you tell the story of, of uh, religious liberty in America without uh, Roger Williams? Uh, it was triumphalist, um, and it wasn't responsible to contemporary scholarship. Um, and I think all of those are perfectly legitimate arguments. Uh, but in some ways, I think, misplaced in the sense that their criticisms, they're, they're not really criticisms of a TV show. Um, and so I, I sort of likened the, many of the criticisms to, you know, what, 
to reading a haiku and then saying, you know, gee, it would have been great if it was just two lines longer. You know, um, <laughs> it just didn't really, they didn't really cover the topic. Um, and so I, I like to think about any kind of um, television or radio or any, anything like this as a kind of challenge of compression and of working inside the norms of the genre. You know, if you have a seven minute interview on Comedy Central, you know, that's all you have. You don't have an eight minute interview and it's not on CNN. You know, it's a different kind of interview. And if you have one hour, you don't have an hour and one minute. And so you need to make choices. And um, the process of making those choices can be really intellectually interesting. And it certainly was for me when I worked on this show. Thank you. Um, I'm honored to be up here with such um, distinguished scholars. I first got involved in media by accident in the way that we all hope that it would happen. National Geographic was making a TV show about early Christian martyrdom and they called faculty at Harvard and Yale and Princeton and said, who should we talk to on early Christian martyrdom? And I had just started at Notre Dame and I had written a dissertation and just signed a couple of contracts to write about early Christian martyrdom, so they called me. And that was how I got involved, and it was from there I went on to make more documentaries, to become involved in news coverage, to start writing a column, and start writing longer pieces. And I think like everyone up here, I did that because fundamentally, like I think everybody in this room, I think that people should know about what it is that we as scholars have to say about religion. I think religion is important in society, and anyone who thinks that, who's given the ability to speak to a broader public about that, I believe, has sort of a moral obligation to do so, because so few people care what we in the academy have to say. I would say that having had those hopes and dreams, I very quickly started to run into the kind of challenges that have already been raised. And these challenges are very situational depending on exactly what you're doing. The first challenge, of course, in all contexts is going to be compression and nuance. I love that you talk about it as being a really interesting intellectual exercise because it's also, at least for me, deeply painful. The first question I was asked on camera on my first documentary show was, what's a martyr? That was the warm-up question. And they believed that that was gonna be an easy question for me to answer. And I said, well, usually a martyr is someone who dies for their religious beliefs, but not always. And, and, and five minutes later, they said, can we try that again? So in a way, it's actually harder to talk about the things that you specialize in than it is other things, because you can. So there's that issue, the issue of generalization. And often, when people communicate with the public from the academy, they are accused of generalizing and missing key points. And I would say, as I think Stephen mentioned, agreed. <laughs> We are generalizing. But also, what are you all doing in your first year classes? People who accuse us of that. Because I would love to learn from you about how not to generalize in teaching as well. Because it's a problem I think we all have there. If you have one semester to do the history of Christianity, you're in exactly the same boat. Uh, the second challenge I would say is relinquishing control. 
So we have a lot of control as academics. And in fact, the more specific your work, the more control you have. If you're writing for Brill or De Gruyter, you get to pick the title of your book. If you're writing for Harper One, you do not. I have never had final say over the title of any of my columns. The place where I've had the most control has been live news coverage. The place I fear I have the least control is pre-taped documentaries. And it's wonderful when you are involved in the production angle and can consult, but ultimately, even if there are producers above your head, there's going to be a network that's going to watch that show and say, I wasn't so interested in whatever section it was, and they'll get to cut that part out of the television show. And I think as scholars, one of the criticisms we get is, oh, that was unnuanced, as if the scholars participating had final say. And so I would say it was certainly a challenge for me to come to terms with relinquishing control and appreciating that this is just the genre. Uh, so, do the, uh, this is I think somewhat of a false binary question, but do the theoretical dis discussions and expectations of the study of religion translate to popular representations of, of religion, especially on, on television? And I think, Candida, you brought up uh, something that I didn't really think about, the issue of control, right? Uh, and so I'm going to leave it to you guys to discuss that question, but that's really, I think, ties in very nicely, ties in very nicely with that. Reza, do you want to go? The question about how to deal with the expectations uh, from the audience when dealing with religion in popular media? Uh, the, the question was, do theoretical discussions and expectations of the academic study of religion translate to popular representations of religion, or is that perhaps a false binary? So uh, what we talk about in our classrooms, in our meetings, does that translate onto television well? You know, and how can we kind of convey that better if not? Well, I mean, look, the truth of the matter is that you cannot bring academics the religion into um, popular realm. Um, you have to simplify ideas and concepts. You have to be entertaining. Otherwise, there's no way that it's going to be um, on television. And you know, those of us here on the panel who do this kind of work get an enormous amount of criticism from um, academics and, and scholars of religion who, though um, we are doing a service to the and by translating terms that pop audience would um, appreciate and gravitate. And that, uh, criticism is always going to be, I've always seen it, but um, I think that it's hard to really respond to that criticism uh, genuinely because you're really talking about two completely different sets of rules, two different disciplines, really. Um, when you are with a popular audience, you have to make sure that you are um, addressing 
their need, the way that they understand and, and recognize and, and uh, retain information. Partly that has to do with storytelling, you know, it has to do with making sure that you strip your um, work and theories of the kind of rarefied language that is um, so indicative of academia. And you also have to um, hide your methodology a lot. I mean, you know, so much of, of the academic discipline of religion is about methodology, and there is no room for methodology um, in in sort of the, the kind of popular work that we're talking about here, um, TV and film. But I do think that uh, it's important, it's enormously important. I mean, you heard this from the, the other panelists that um, they a, a, a real need out there for kind of religious literacy that um, they're trying to provide. And B, I think good for our discipline. I mean, I think, I can't tell you how many people in my 15 years of weakness um, have come to me and have said that they have decided to go into the academic study of religion to major or minor in religious studies because of the things that they have seen, the work that I've done either um, on television or you know the the sort of general research that I that I work on. So uh, you know I, I get supported sometimes by um, you know some of the responses uh, kind of work that that's from uh, academics. I will say that, and I'd be curious to know whether the panel agrees with me. I really have noticed a generational shift within academia. Um, yes, the, the older um, academics think are much more subtle about the um, the purpose and process, translating the popular audience. But I don't notice that thing among um, younger academics. And I jokingly refer to this as the Daily Show phenomenon. You know, once have seen a Russia scholar talking about, you know, uh, early 20th century Soviet Union history on The Daily Show, making jokes with John Stewart about it. I think a lot of younger academics took themselves, well, hell, I could do that. Um, I don't notice nearly as much of a conflict about this among younger scholars, but I still notice it a lot from the older generation. I think... No Reza, offense to the older generation the audience. Uh, Reza, I think you bring up an important point. So maybe I just want to uh, kind of loop back on the question and say, uh, I think when I was first imagining the question, I was thinking this more of a critique of television. And now that I'm thinking about it and talking with you guys, maybe this is more of a critique of our field, of our discipline, that sometimes we become too... Uh, mired in the in these details that uh, to a general TV audience uh, don't necessarily mean as much and when it comes to the public understanding of religion and relig issues of religious literacy uh, aren't as relevant as uh, you know what we're presenting on on television so if you can just maybe Comment so, on my question and add on that to see if I'm. So you know. the, the, let me uh, uh, address that because I think that that's a great, great uh, sort of point here that I, I teach uh, on religion film and I've been interesting to see. I, this is like the 
25th year I've come to AAR, and you know, in 25 years to see the change in, let's say, religion film, or 25 years ago, no one was talking about religion film. Now it's, it's an integral part of, of this. I had that sort of vicious critic mentality that said, you know, film was art and television was trash, you know, because it was commercial and that kind of thing. Then you realize about cable and other kinds of things. And then you start talking to people who actually work in the industry. And in Los Angeles, you're able to do that. And it's like, no, 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 I can tell this story. So if I get a film, I got two hours to tell a story. If I've got, you know, 14 episodes of a, a, a one-season show, I've got a lot more time to tell that, that story. And I think for me, that's really the key is, is who's your audience? And I love Steve's line about, you know, I wish the haiku had more lines or, or, or for Canada about, you know, how do you teach your intro class? Because that's precisely the, the point here. Like, what's your audience? I, I always say this to, to uh, people asking about writing. Bad writers, when you ask them who's their audience, will say everyone. Good writers will say, no, 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 I'm writing this article for scholars of the Quran. That's different than writing this article for scholars of Islam which is different from writing this article for scholars of, of religion, you know, here. Uh, the, the impact that the media has is extraordinary. Like, you know, I will write a scholarly, critical, peer-reviewed article, and it'll be downloaded like 256 times, and 55 of those are people that I know, you know. Um, that's not negative. That's, that's the coin of the realm, you know, scholarly, peer-reviewed sort of work. I wouldn't have been tenured if that wasn't the case. I always know when something that I've done for the History Channel has been rebroadcast, because I'll get about 36 emails you know, uh, about that. I never get 36 emails about an article that I've written. You know, it's just not there. And so I, I think we're, be, we're able to address things that I think people are genuinely curious about, which for them may be what for us is very simplistic. But again, it's like, yeah, but most of the world hasn't been studying religion for you know, a decade or so to get your PhD and doing that kind of, uh, of, uh, of work. And so if you can have accurate portrayals, it works really well. If you have negative portrayals, and I'll, I'll offer up a negative one, uh, watching an episode of House, you know, Hugh Laurie's just a wonderful, wonderful uh, actor. Um, and it was a show that had an evangelical faith healer. And the show begins with this faith healer sort of casting out demons in the name of God. And you know, I knew the, the, the woman who had written that episode, and I was able to talk with her and say, so yeah, Canada's point is a good one. Like, so when did they make you change that? Like, what, what happened when that changed? She's like, what are you talking about? Well, you know, the casting out demons in the name of God. And she's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, oh, okay. Get what I'm saying here. No evangelical ever that I've ever known would ever cast out a demon in the name of God. Because there is one name above all names that will cast out demons. And that is the name of Jesus, you know? Where I'm going with this is that anyone watching this is gonna say, this is stupid, that's not what we do. You know, so all it takes is, is that little, little thing to nuance it, to, to work it, and, and people see things. And for American Muslims, this has been sort of an interesting year. So you talk about, you know, the ways in which sort of Reza's scholarship on Islam or my scholarship on Islam, just to talk about our particular sort of stuff, may help influence things. You know, well, this year you had Mahershala Ali win an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for Moonlight. You had Aziz Ansari win, what, like three Emmys for uh, uh, Master of None. You had Kumail Nanjiani with sort of the breakout hit of The Big Sick. I think that does more for the way in which people understand Muslims than certainly anything I've ever written there. I obviously agree with everything that has been said. In terms of what can and cannot 
be disseminated to the public? I think there's a question of quantity and a question of quality. So when I write my column, I usually say, take one thing, one cherished idea, and you can have that be the thing that you write about in your column that you say is wrong. This can't be the column where you talk about a textual variant in the New Testament, how you shouldn't use the word pagan because blah, 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 and how um, your definition of Roman is really Greco-Roman because you cannot do all of those things at once. You kind of have to pick, um, as we have to pick in teaching. I would say that there are certain kinds of scholarly ideas that don't translate well. So I'm in the field of Christianity. I'm enormously proud of getting CBS News to talk about intersectionality <laughs> on television or of persuading CBS that instead of maybe talking about Pope Francis practicing his English for coming to America, um, we could instead talk about what did turn out to be a major theme for him, his interest in the environment and the fact that he went to places where there had been natural disasters. So these were places where I felt like I made uh, a positive difference in the way that the news was communicating to the public. It would be very difficult, I think, Elizabeth, Casali tried this. It would be difficult to tell the public that they should no longer care about who Jesus really was because our methods for ascertaining anything about Jesus are flawed. Because nobody cares about that. They, they want you to tell them who Jesus was, which is exactly why Reza's book was so successful. So there are certain kinds of things. Could you say, let's talk about the definition of religion? Yeah, I think we could do that. We could say, well, I'm not sure that's just religious. We could talk about the intersection of religion with other kinds of identity. But there are certain kinds of ideas that I don't think play very well, um, certainly not in sound bites. So I think there are some limitations. In terms of conveying religious studies theory, I don't, I think that that's very difficult. But I do think there are ideas that scholars of religion have invented uh, and um, used and, and approaches in the study of religion that that can and are used on television. I know in the God in America series there was a real interest in attending to religious diversity, which was something that in my field of American religious history there had been a shift in my l lifetime over the last couple generations from a kind of Protestant focus to a more um, religious pluralism focus. And in fact, some of the criticisms of the series for being too Protestant were themselves articulating that. But the people who were making the, the, uh, these six hours of TV were very keen on trying to be representative uh, and trying to allow multiple religious communities to be visible. Another important idea in American religious history and more broadly in the study of religion over maybe the past 25 years has been lived religion, this idea that what really matters is the experiences of ordinary people more than the ideas of elites. And that certainly was a concept that was at play among the producers and directors of God in America. In fact, they used the language. They knew that language. They had read uh, you know, David Hall and Bob Orsi's edited collection on lived religion in America. They had read that. Um, and they were trying to, uh, trying to do that in the series. And then another thing that I think was really striking was the effort at uh, Ninian Smart's idea of empathetic understanding, 
This is a main driver of the executive producer of God in America, and in fact, he got in fights with his associate producers and associate uh, assistant directors over this. I remember sitting in on a meeting where he was almost screaming after he had seen an early treatment for one of the hours where he, th he thought it was condescending toward religious people. And, and he said, look, I know we're in Boston. I know half of you are atheists. I know the other half of you are agnostics. But that doesn't mean that we can't treat these religious people with respect. And that's what we're doing here. And he got agitated and um, people got upset. People worried they were going to lose their jobs. Um, but that was you know, Smart's idea of empathetic understanding. That's what he was channeling into the room. Let me say something quickly about um, Reza's uh, observation, which I think is smart and I, I agree with about there being generational um, issues here. I know I'm old enough that when I started writing uh, for the public, there weren't a lot of religious studies scholars who were doing that. And it was kind of a weird thing. But now with uh, my graduate students and uh, many of my students who are out out and about, you know, it's just a normal thing for them. There isn't this anxiety of, gee, should I, you know, write a blog, if I write a blog post, am I going to not get tenure or not get a job because it's going to show that I'm a, you know, you know, a lightweight thinker and a, a bad academic, you know, that whole thing. I think maybe more in our field than in other fields because there's so much public interest in religion um, has really has really gone away, and it's considered a, a value added on your resume if you have written an op-ed piece for you know, USA Today or wherever you might have done it. And I don't think that was true before. And I think it would be hard to find uh, scholars, in, certainly in American religion, under the age of, of 30, who don't have a pretty good resume in terms of what we think of as public, um, public intellectual, uh, intellectual work. So, I, I think I um, tend to agree with that. And I'll say one more thing about the Daily Show uh, phenomenon at, at, because I, I did do that show. Um, and that is that this is another uh, moment of compression and it, and it goes to this issue of, you know, what's a martyr, right? Because <laughs> when you're asked what's a martyr on the Daily Show, you have to, you have to say it in like 12 words. Right. And um, otherwise you get cut off. So you, you have seven minutes and you really only have one, two or three sentences max before you know, John Stewart or, or whoever else is, is there um, comes back at you. And I think that he, there is training to that. You know, you have to figure out how to do that. And it isn't how we tend to talk, as you can tell by me. I've just been going on for four or five minutes right now. So, um, so there is this shift uh, from uh, various ways of speaking into, and it is, as uh, Canada said, uh, very contextual. It'll be different if you, they're going to take one soundbite from you for a CBS News clip, uh, then it, in, in which case you're thinking about saying a soundbite, or whether you got seven minutes to talk on a Comedy Central show. Uh, uh, Carl Ernst, who's this great uh, scholar of Islam, has this great line, sort of post 9-11, you know, a lot of us who are scholars of Islam were asked to do sort of more uh, popular kinds of things. And he says that the, the real trick is how to teach academics to speak in eight-word sentences. Because we're not used to, like as Stephen said, a short answer for us is five minutes. That's the bare minimum to scratch the surface. Television, eight words. That um, makes me think, you know, I, as I'm listening to you guys talk, uh, what are some, and, and you've already given some concrete things that scholars of religion can do to enhance uh, the public understanding of religion on television or in columns or on a 
comedy interview shows. Uh, but so there, I think there's some concrete things that these guys can teach us about what we can do, but also uh, what are some of the concerns regarding religious representation or scholarly responsibility or popular prejudices that you find you had to address when you're in the midst of program production? Reza, do you want to start us off again? Sorry, I, I missed that. Oh, sorry. What are uh, concerns regarding religious representation, scholarly responsibility, or popular prejudices uh, did you find you had to address when, the, when in the midst of program production? What are, what are my concerns about scholarly misrepresentations in the sort of popular media representations of religion? Is that, is that the question? I guess, what are some of the concerns you had about misrepresenting religion uh, when putting them in your documentaries or talking about it in an interview? You know, because you've been in interviews before where you've been very forceful about, no, this is what it is, and you've taken on at least from what I've seen, some uh, very misinformed TV anchors, you know. So uh, how do you kind of get past that? I mean, I'm, if, if I understand your question correctly, I, I don't have any concerns about misrepresenting religion uh, or religions uh, um, in popular media. I mean, I try to be as well-informed as I possibly can, and I try my hardest to uh, talk to as many um, experts as I possibly can and, and to for that information in an accessible and entertaining way. There will always be people who are going to complain mm. that it was misrepresented, um, that their particular beliefs were um, misrepresented, and that just comes with the territory. There's really nothing not about it except to just have as much integrity as one can um, to try to be as fair um, and impartial as possible, um, just as we are in scholarship presenting it for a popular audience. But I think that if you are unwilling to deal with uh, criticism, um, then it's probably not the job for you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I, I, I'd like to answer that question um, in regard to what uh, Canada said about relinquishing control, because I think that that's a really interesting piece of this. I know that I've talked to scholars of religion who say that they don't want to be interviewed, they don't want to be on TV, they don't want to be quoted, they don't talk to journalists because of that issue, uh, because they don't know how their quote is going to be used, right? Um, if it's, say, a news piece. Uh, and similarly, if it's an edited, uh, an edited piece, or even if it's a live piece. I mean, in a live piece that you said you felt best about, you know, there's always the, like, go back to the anchor and, well, there's Canada. She sure doesn't know what the hell she's talking about. Back to you, Bob, <laughs> right? I mean, you don't, you're not in charge of how it, co how it comes in and out, right? So, so um, it reminds me a little bit of a friend of mine, one of my college friends who uh, became a screenwriter in, uh, in L.A. And I remember he wrote uh, this screenplay. It was actually for uh, the immortal um, film Speed 2. Some of you might have seen this not very good movie. Um, he, I think there were six screenwriters on, the, on this movie. He wrote the first, uh, the first draft of the, 
of the script. And uh, after it got through six people, there was only one sentence that was in uh, the actual movie that he wrote. He wrote one sentence, and he was credited at, for the story. He, he wrote the story, but he only wrote one sentence. And it was actually a joke uh, that some Jamaican guy said that was just this Jamaican joke. And it was so funny that nobody could take it out, uh, but that was it. Like, if it hadn't been this very specific kind of thing, it would, that, even that wouldn't have survived. And so uh, TV and movies are a, a really collaborative medium where if you get involved with them uh, as an academic, there's in some ways you have a lot of opportunity to influence things, and in some ways you have so little capacity to move the needle because there's so many people involved who aren't, who aren't you. And so you have a kind of persuasive capability that, that you know, a finished carpenter might have with an architect and an owner of a house, but that really isn't, uh, isn't a particularly powerful uh, possibility. And so that goes, too, to the misrepresentation problem. I know that in God in America, this is a more nerdy, nerdy show than, we're, than, than some of the others that we're talking about. Um, they had fact checkers, you know, they, this is PBS, you know, they, they don't want to have incorrect facts in their, in their um, films. And so there was a lot of concern of the people who were making uh, the films about getting things right. And that included, they did some recreations of uh, the Pueblo Revolt of uh, 1680 and of the Anne Hutchison trial and um, Frederick Douglass, and you know they were concerned to get things right, to get things right, and they were worried about uh, about misrepresentations. Um, and I do think this is a place, right, where we can say, you know, yeah, you don't you don't cast out demons in the name of like some generic god; you do it in the name of Jesus, right? Um, and where where we can be helpful. But I think we also are su subject to this ourselves. We're humans who have our own biases about things, and. And uh, so it's good to um, have those checked with our collaborators. And sometimes our collaborators don't have religious studies degrees, and they are able to check us on our mistakes as well. I, I, th I think that's uh, uh, really important. So when I was uh, working on uh, Saving Grace, I was often in the writer's room, and sometimes some of the actors would be there too. And it was just uh, amazing, wrong word, but you know, interesting to see you know, the, the, just the misconceptions that people had. So Holly Hunter's character in this show was Catholic. Uh, Bokeem Washington played a, a, a convert to uh, Islam. And they were talking about, well, you know, with the Pope, does the Pope have like direct hotline of God? Like, no, that's the prophet of the Mormon tradition. That's not the Pope, you know. But just these kinds of things that, that, that folks aren't aware of. Uh, they were doing a scene with, you know, Bokeem praying in his prison cell. And it, it, I, ha I happened to be actually on set the day it was great that I was because, you know, he had his shoes on. Because I just never bothered to say, oh, by the way, when Muslims do these prayers, they take their shoes off. Like, you know, just that kind of, of thing. So, so those little things, I think, can be really interesting um, kind of way of, of addressing that. P part of it is, you know, what level of control do you have? And I think Canada's point is well taken that it really is an interdisciplinary sort of process of, of making film because it's the editors, writers. I was saying this, you know, a friend who's a producer for the X-Men film. I asked him one day, like, you know, how many people work for you? It's like on the payroll? Yeah, well, between three and 4,000, depending on which film. And it's just a huge number of people. Like, there's more accountants on that show than there are on that film than there are like actors. It's just how do you pay the people? How do you build the sets? How do you do the kind of 
stuff there. And so that becomes this interesting kind of thing. But you know, you, you don't have control over all of that. Uh, there are parts where you do. And so working with, you know, as, as, as Stephen was mentioning, working with PBS, working with National Geographic, really good. You know, getting the, uh, the rough cuts, being able to see things, being able to catch things, and being able to make some suggestions because they, they appreciate some suggestions. Uh, for me, you know, uh, some of it was just the factual kinds of stuff. But one of them was, you know, they were doing an episode on sort of extremism, including Islamic extremism. And they had initially, they'd sent me like, and they were gonna show like a 20 second ISIS recruitment, or 20 seconds of an ISIS recruitment video. And they'd asked me to sort of, you know, translate the Arabic. And I'm like, I'm happy to do that, but you know, I'd really prefer if we didn't show 20 seconds of an ISIS recruitment video, because we're kind of putting that on the air for, you know, kind of thing there. And they were like, yeah, that's actually a good point. You know, maybe you shouldn't do this kind of uh, uh, thing there. So really interesting, like at what level are you able to have some input uh, into that? And like I said, I was really proud of that episode. Uh, Kenny Johnson played uh, uh, this wonderful character, amazing, amazing actor on um, uh, Saving Grace. And just, you know, his reaction to his you know, fictional brother's funeral and showing that and sort of talking about what's the reality of, of, of uh, servicemen. Uh, and women who, give, who, who are killed you know, in action, how do their families grieve, what happens, and the fact that we could do this on a fake show and not on a, a, a real show was both powerful and very uh, poignant. Yeah, I, I would echo these thoughts. I think it's very, it's very situational, and it depends on what context you're in. So that there are places that are, as a CBS news producer said to me, we want you to look smart. If you look smart, we look good. So they're there to work with you in a friendly way. Fortunately, on CBS, the, the news anchors wouldn't say that because I'm their correspondent. <laughs> but if I was on Fox, it yes. would be different. Um, if you're chipping in on like a National Geographic show, you can give them ideas, you can tell them, the Bible, the TV show um, that Roma Downey and Mark Burnett made, initially in, in one of the early sort of um, rough cuts, they had Mary say to Joseph when he's wondering how she's pregnant, uh, she said, I haven't been with anyone else. And I was like, you know, Roman Catholics aren't going to be cool with the sort of intimation that they're sleeping together. Um, and and at, I don't know how many people had worked on that before I said, what do you mean, anyone else? Um, so there are places where you can make interventions in a friendly way, and that's your job. I would say, just as a matter of practical advice, I believe in going into unfriendly contexts. Now, I think I should be on Fox News getting shouted at, because those are the people that I want to reach. But when you're in those contexts, there are certain practical things that you can do. One is, if you can possibly swing it for whatever reason, always do it in studio. Do not let them have you remotely so that they can cut you off and you can't see anything. Some people are very accustomed to looking at the black box, but it's hard when you're getting shouted at. Maybe Reza does this better than I do. <laughs> um, and um, actually a media advisor advised me of doing this. Always smile. It doesn't matter what's happening, just smile so that you don't look scared. Um, it's really hard in those contexts. Um, when I did O'Reilly, I had four different trains of thought going through my head. In addition to be constantly distracted by things he was saying that were wrong, <laughs> I was aware that it was being pre-taped. 
pre-taped to look alive. So I was aware that I didn't want to look like the angry feminist that I am, <laughs> um, because it could be easily edited to amplify that. And I was also constantly thinking, don't look like the elitist professor. He pronounced the word anachronistic and narcissistic and pretended he didn't know what it meant. He does know what it means. He went to Harvard. It was a trap. And so in those contexts, you really need to be very selective in what you're picking, despite the fact that people are leaving out these crumbs for you to jump on and look like a kind of hyper-specific academic. So I say this in terms of there are unfriendly media contexts, and then there are contexts in which they want you to look good, and they want your help. That's why you're there. Thank you. So I'm going to ask if the four of you have questions for each other. Uh, and if you do, great. And if not, we'll t start taking questions from, from the audience. And, and there are mics right here and here if someone has a question. Or, oh, it looks like, oh, there we go. Please introduce yourself, too. We'd like to know who you are. Hi, I'm Rebecca Hankins. I'm from Texas A&M University. Um, and, and I know you talked about criticism, uh, especially when you're finally getting them to talk about religion. Um, but something you said in my research, what I look at is the depiction of African-American Muslims on TV and film. And so one of the things that you said, uh, uh, Professor Amir, was about Mahershad Ali receiving an Emmy, playing a character that wasn't Muslim, uh, Regina King getting an Emmy for playing an African-American Muslim woman, um, what's its name, Riz Ahmed getting an uh, Emmy on HBO's The Night Of, which I'll, I think his depiction of an hour, uh, his, that show and the, um, the one, Re Regina King, The American Crime, are really egregious depictions of African-American Muslims, but we want to celebrate the fact that African-American Muslims are being depicted, um, but you're pushing a trope that even in the other show you said, Saving Grace, the African-American is criminalized. So all of African, almost all African-American Muslim depictions seem to be criminal. Sure. Justice system, or they're anti-Semitic, or they are um, homophobic, or they are sexist, you know, or the black men who are in the prisons are hypocritical because they're really lusting after white women. So yes, there is criticism of the way, yes, we, we're glad you're, you know, including African-American Muslims in these stories, but when you play into those tropes about them, it's really, really problematic. Oh, I, I, Absolutely, absolutely, and I say that 
you know, as someone who's worked on a very small number of, of shows, but even on some of those shows, you know, it's, it's again that sense of control. And so using like Bokeem's character on, on Saving Grace, yeah, he's in, he's, you know, uh, uh, in prison. And so is that perpetuating the stereotype or because, you know, for me, it's not I'm, I'm not writing that show. I'm not doing that show. Nancy's doing the show. And so at a certain level, you can sort of voice concerns, but it's not my call. Of other shows, you don't have the the sort of luxury of being able to to look at that and do those kinds of things. Uh, some of it comes about in really you know interesting sorts of ways. So the first regular Muslim character on American television was Kareem Saeed, you know, Eamon Walker's character on Tom Fontana's Oz, you know, up, up in prison. Exactly the same kind of uh, idea there. So you have that, and, and for Tom Fontana, I interviewed him for a book project I did a decade ago, and he said, yeah, yeah, I never set out to create this Muslim character. I'm just, I was doing a, Tom Fontana does uh, cop shows, and the cop shows end, you know, when the bad guy goes to prison. And so for him, it was, like, what happens when they're in prison? So I went to a prison show, and I can't do a prison show without talking about the archaeology of the gangs, including sort of black Muslims. So that's the nature of, of the thing. And so I think in that case, it actually worked quite well, you know, in terms of do, uh, doing the, the kinds of characters. But absolutely, and, and that's a question that, you know, my friends who are actors, and I think that's part of it. So whenever I speak to Muslim audiences, that's where I'm always talking about, you know, if we're concerned about the representations, where are our kids in this? Are we letting our kids become uh, uh, actors, writers, directors, producers doing that? So that's part of it. Part of it, and I see this the same thing with my friends who are uh, Latino or African American, not, not, not Muslim, of the the toss-up of, you know, do I work or do I perpetuate a stereotype? So I've got friends who will say, yeah, I'm not going to read for drug dealer number two. I'm not going to read for gangbanger number one. Someone else will say, gangbanger number one is going to make me $30,000. You know, I can send my kid to school on gangbanger number one. I'm going to read, you know, it's so really interesting sorts of issues that come up there. Thank you. I'm Kathy Grossman. I spent uh, many years at USA Today, where I too faced the problem of compression and editing and so forth. Um, and one of the challenges was visualization, photographs. Um, for those of you who work on documentaries, um, it's very difficult without doing just an array of talking heads followed by panoramas of the relevant landscape, followed by more talking heads. Um, visualizing ideas and doing it in a way that's not um, the endless panoply of stained glass and also you know, Middle Eastern desert. Stained glass, desert, those seem to be the two alternatives. Um, if you can give me some examples of, of a situation where you were able to uh, maybe have an influence in that or suggest ideas or how you deal with that challenge because film and television are so visual. Um, I made a documentary, well, I was in a documentary, <laughs> I made it, um, <laughs> called Secret Lives of the Apostles. And the producer-director made a point of having actually, I thought, incredibly entertaining um, sort of visuals in between the talking heads, so not just the reenactments. And he did tell me, oh, what are the scenes I reenacted of the disciples hiding in the upper room I got from something you said? And it was, and I was horrified. It was like I'd written a scene into the Bible <laughs> because he depicted it as if it was in the Bible. Um, so I was worried about that, but he had a sort of humorous quality. And I remember being criticized by the chair of my former department because after I said something about the end of the world coming, they had put a scene of a nuclear bomb mushroom cloud and my chair thought that was terrible and said, well, I didn't like that. And I said, well, I didn't even know that was going in it. 
Um, but I, I really like that documentary, generally. Um, it's sort of humorous. It has um, a lot of kind of artifacts, ancient artifacts being used in, in creative and playful ways. Um, and many more of those than just kind of panorama of desert, stained glass. I don't think there was any stained glass. A part of it too is, is you know, what's the production, how much money do they have, what the sort of technology. So when I saw some of the rough cuts of Story of God, and again, I'm just a consultant, I'm not, you know, doing the kinds of things uh, there, but it was sort of, it literally was, you know, a black screen and insert CGI here. And then so some of the, the, the computer-generated images are really sort of powerful, some animations. They, they did some really great things because one of the other shows that Mr. Freeman did, uh, Through the Wormhole, you know, some really interesting sort of the, 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 the astronomical space, you know, those kinds of, of shots there. He also happens to be, I mean, he's an extraordinary man who's a, a, a pilot and trained to fly like several different aircraft. And some of the stuff was sort of shots from, from literally from, from his perspective in the, cat, in the cockpit and looking at so really interesting. So just that, because it's not just visuals, it's moving images and where do you do those kinds of things. So they were able to do that, but that's having that budget. I mean, when we, we shot a, a scene in Washington at the uh, Islamic Center in DC, and it was amazing, like in this uh, hotel, there were like, you know, 13 rooms for sort of like the, the, the people working there. And we literally had two rooms for the equipment. I mean, just the amount of cameras and what they were able to do and that kind of stuff. But they had, they had the funding for National Geographic. It was a very expensive television show to produce because it was over a million dollars an episode, which for you know uh, National Geographic is a lot of money. For commercial television, you're paying. I mean, Sheldon's making a million dollars in the time I finished this sentence, you know, in Big Bang Theory, and so you know it's that kind of of, of uh, economies of scale. You know, what are you able to do uh, with the amount of money and technology that you have? I think one of the uh, one of the one of the clear uh, points of visual representation, um, Kathy, and thank you for all your amazing journalism, religion journalism. Uh, you know, we have a lot of religion journalists now, but Kathy was really one of the uh, uh, great ones there at USA Today and continues to, to do really important work. So thank you for your question. But I think one uh, way religion is represented most clearly and most most typically on television is in the, a hum human person. Um, and part of that is the desire for characters and character development. And so I think there's the dominant thing isn't a cross or a, or a crescent or something like that. It's a, it's a person, you know, and, and, and certainly in fictional, fictional TV, but even in, even in documentaries, there is this real desire to get humans in front of the eyes of humans who watch them. I would say that's that's the main way religion is represented, isn't it? As you know, we see Muslims, we see Christians, we see Buddhists, we see Santeria practitioners, um, because viewers can identify with them, and we want to see some development in their character, um, because that's the storytelling impulse that we have inherited in our DNA from however many millennia that humans have been telling stories. Reza, did you want to add something? No. Okay. <laughs> right. 
Bart? Yeah, thank you guys for a great panel. I've got a very concrete question for Reza, then an open-ended question for the panel as a whole. Uh, I am interested in teaching an episode or two of Believer in a class I'm doing this spring. It seems not to be available anywhere uh, such that I could pay money for it. Uh, please tell, will it be available? Um, two, for, uh, for the panel as a whole, it's like, so I'm curious, like it seems to me that um, we've seen a tremendous change in how race and gender get talked about on television over the past 30 years or so, and in ways where it seems like the Academy has had a strong effect on, you know, how TV writers, like people in TV rooms have degrees from places like Wesleyan, and they think about race and gender in much the same way that I do, and they might mess it up sometimes, but sort of the meta vocabulary for thinking about representation of race and gender uh, feels legible to me. I, I feel like that is not the case with regard to religion. Uh, people who write for TV seem really flat-footed when they talk about or think about religion, so they might mess up facts, you know, like uh, wearing shoes when praying, but in general things just feel flat-footed at the meta level. So I would be curious to hear you guys more as sort of a follow-up to Shrina's earlier question. I'd be curious to hear you guys say a little bit more about what theory questions or method questions you think translate well, or what your wish list would be of how we as scholars can cue people to think differently about religion. You know, you, so I mean, like Stephen said that um, lived religion translates well. Canada said that religion versus culture can translate well. I'd be curious to know what else you guys think does translate well at the level of ideas for changing how media practitioners think about religion over and above just sort of the facts of religion. Katrina, uh, would you mind just um, summarizing that? But, so the, the question for you is about Believer. Is Believer available? How, how can we access Believer? Because he wants to use it in a classroom. Oh. Uh, well, uh, as some of you may know, uh, I had a falling out with CNN. Uh, because of uh, the fact that I think that our president is a piece of shit. Um, and, uh, what was it you so said again? <laughs> four or five months uh, for us to uh, rest the show away from them and just got back last week. So um, the show is mine again, and we're in the process of uh, placing the first six episodes onto another platform, um, and hopefully that'll happen soon then to go and perhaps film uh, a few more. So it'll be a little bit longer, but hopefully by January, it'll be up and um, uh, notice about it. And, uh, and I, you know, I, I really do hope that it is used for educational purposes. I know that a lot of people do um, get it on YouTube, which I think it's still on YouTube and, and YouTube Classroom. Um, but our hope is to actually create DVDs that can be used specifically for um, classroom and as an educational tool. But give me until January. I'd love to respond to the uh, flat-footed um, because that was my one uh, serious qualm and criticism of God in America. Uh, and, and it is a problem when you have a lot of secular uh, people who may have also gone to Wesleyan, who uh, are trying to do religious people on screen. And, and this is one reason why we make arguments for representation of uh, people of different races and sexual orientations and ethnicities and genders uh, in the writing rooms and in the you know, production companies for, for TV, that we are aware that you have a better sense of sensibilities and affect and these sorts of things that 
you don't necessarily know or see unless you're one of them. And one example for me is I can't go to uh, see movies with bad Boston accents. You know, I don't have a Boston accent, but I grew up in Massachusetts and I know what one sounds like and it drives me, you know, crazy uh, when I hear a bad one. So, but I can hear that and a lot of other, a lot of people can't. But on God in America, there was, an, there was an episode or a segment where we did the Second Great Awakening and we did this guy who was going in, uh, to, I believe it was a uh, Cane Ridge revival in Kentucky, and he was converted. And they were really trying to do empathetic understanding. Like, they weren't trying to say, and then, you know, this irrational man had this irrational moment where he became stupid and he loved Jesus. Like, that wasn't it. They were really trying to um, empathize with him. But they did it so over the top that it was like no evangelical I've ever known. You know, he was like, and then I was you know, feeling the power of the Lord. And, you know, it was in this way, like, you know, I know evangelicals are like, yeah, and then it was really cool. I mean, I just felt the power of Jesus and boom, I mean, it was awesome, you know. But they kind of made him hyper-sincere in a way that I thought translated also to the readers as kind of weird and exotic and, and abnormal, even though they were trying to, they were going for the other thing. But there was no evangelical in the room who said, you know, that's not really how we sound. So I think it's a really good point, and I don't think that we, uh, we're doing as, as good a job um, with that as we could. Yeah. No, and, and j just following up uh, uh, on that, I think, I think that's a really great uh, point there in terms of, you know, the flat-footedness, what happens. Some of it is, you know, I, I've lived in L.A. long enough that you start knowing people who work on some of the, the shows and movies and that kind of thing. And so part of the pitch is, to them is always, I mean, it's always have me star in them, but that's not worked. Uh, but it's been that, you know, A, religious people are not religious all the time. Like, you know, like this is part of your identity. It's not the sum total of, of, of the identity. And so a show I think that gets it really well with respect to Islam is a television show, Community. You know, uh, Greendale Community College, five seasons. Danny Pudi plays this character, Abed Nadir, who's like half Palestinian, half Polish, except his dad is Iqbal Thiba, who's Pakistani, which I think is a really nice play on the fact that many Americans confuse Pakistan with Palestine. Uh, Salman Rushdie told a great line about someone talking about him coming from Pakistan, uh, which was lovely. But, you know, the, the Danny Pudi character, there's like, I think, three episodes of Community in the five seasons that are actually focused on some Islamic aspect, like one where his cousin comes in a burqa kind of thing. But the rest is, he's just a guy who's at community college who happens to be Muslim. So that's a great, you know, kind of example there. But the, but the pitch to folks is always, yeah, I'm certainly saying, you know, please don't cast us as, you know, the terrorist or the drug dealer, that kind of thing. Be great if you cast us as the hero, you know. But cast us as the ordinary, like you have us running a Starbucks, have us, you know, if you're doing a, a, a show around, you know, doctors, have a Muslim, because there's some Muslim doctors. If you're doing like community college show, have a Muslim professor or student, that's the reality. And God goes back almost to, you know, where's the, the lived religion, you know, in the world. And we get that all the time. I mean, let's just say that, you know, growing up watching Friends, uh, that's not my understanding of New York, uh, so. Yeah, I guess I would just, uh, what Bart's question made me think about, though, the flat-footedness is some of the criticisms that sometimes we have in religious studies, and one of the, talking about translatable concepts, is uh, the issue of Orientalism, right? And the issue of exotification of, of people who are religious and the othering of people religious. And so does, 
television or the representation of television in various media almost reproduce that Orientalism, that exoticism, that kind of othering. And so what do you think about that? And then how do we kind of combat that? So I'm kind of piggybacking off Bart's question. Um, I've yet to see like a really great depiction of a liberal Catholic. And the way that you would do that is you would just have a character who is just a character who is wearing a crucifix. And apart from that, you need have no reference to anything about her. You know, she wouldn't have to be guilty all the time. Right. She wouldn't, you know, like torn apart about contraception. Um, just, it would be, but you would need markers. And in the same way as such of actors in television shows tend to exaggerate their facial expressions right. to translate on the small screen. I, I think we have that in, in mocking characters as religious. Yeah. It's exaggerated. And, and part of it is, I'm thinking now, I mentioned Salman Rushdie above already, there's a great, I mean, many great lines in Satanic Verses where he talks, to, there's a, a character who literally has become sort of transmogrified to something else, and, he, and his sort of explanation is, you know, they, meaning sort of the white Britons, have the power of explanation. They describe us, and we succumb to the pictures that they constructed. I love that, and, and having, you know, grown up, uh, as a grad student uh, in the first decade of Edward Said's uh, Orientalism and more so his covering Islam book, you know, really powerful things. And that goes back to something I said before, that for me with Muslims it becomes, yeah, as long as other people are describing us, it may be problematic. How do we describe, like, are we in there? Are we in that thing? I, I have no doubt that one of the reasons that The Daily Show has such a great sort of sense of, of Islam and Muslims is you've had, you know, uh, uh, people Asif Manvi, uh, Hassan Minaj, you know, there on the show, in the writer's room, as correspondents. And again, that's the kind of thing that, you know, whenever I speak to Muslim audiences, I say to the parents, you know, cover your ears because you don't want to hear this, you know. Muslim mothers are Jewish mothers. There are four jobs. You can be a doctor, a lawyer, engineer, business owner, and there is no fifth option. You know, it's yeah. like, we have enough. And, and I was going to say Indian parents, same thing, yeah, yeah. We have enough doctors and lawyers and engineers. Where are the writers? Where are the directors? Where are the actors? Where are the people who do PR? I mean, you forget that you know PR for a film, if a, if a X-Men film costs $100 million, they're going to spend $100 million just promoting it. There's a lot of money to be made you know, in, in that kind of thing. And so how are we getting involved, meaning speaking as a Muslim, in, in doing that kind of thing? I think that helps, uh, too, in terms of the de-exoticization uh, uh, kind of uh, approach. The next question, please. Hi, my name is Andrew Henry. I'm a PhD candidate in religious studies at Boston University. And I just wanted to pick up on this theme of the story, uh, the, the impulse for story that Dr. Prathra was talking about. Um, how can we bring narrative-driven religious literacy programming to television? Because we can throw all the facts and figures in a religious studies class about the different world religions. But in the same way of throwing facts and figures at a climate change denier doesn't make somebody suddenly start believing in climate change. I'm not sure if facts and figures about religion will necessarily help us live in a more pluralistic society. Uh, I see Reza Aslan's uh, CNN Believer show as a move in this direction for like a narrative TV show. I know Reza has also pitched uh, a sitcom about a Muslim family. So I just was curious if we, we can think about narrative-driven uh, religious literacy or a way to bring a public understanding of religion through story and narrative. Thanks. Did you hear the question properly, Reza? Sure. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely think that that is the case. I mean, whether we are doing it in the documentary series um, platform, so dealing with nonfiction, dealing with um, education and religious literacy, or what I think is actually more effective, which is um, using fiction in order to actually educate people about the nature of faith and how it expresses itself um, in the modern world and how it is affected by things like culture, rights, and politics. I think what makes fiction a little bit more powerful is that the opportunity to create um, new myths, myths that aren't that don't necessarily carry the baggage um, that um, the, the current religious myth do. Um, I mean, I think it's great to do television shows that deal specifically with Christian or Jewish or Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist uh, 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 mythology, but oftentimes that can be a turnoff for viewers who feel as though um, you are either denigrating their myths or you are presenting an interpretation of their myths that they do not necessarily share. And TV is a commercial enterprise, and it's all about how people, you know, watch your show. And so those concerns turn off a lot of producers and television executives and make them not want to deal with a specific religious theme, which is why the more successful narrative uh, shows that deal with themes of religion and faith do so by setting it either in an apocalyptic or apocalyptic uh, realm, like Hangman, which is an enormously successful show, um, or um, set it in some kind of um, alternative reality, uh, The Leftovers. Um, in doing so, it allows you to deal very specifically with um, issues of faith and religion, you could do so with integrity and with an eye for um, educating, creating precisely the, the type of religious literacy that would like to spread without necessarily the pitfalls of um, dealing with specific religions in the world that we live in today. Um, so I, I think that's a, a very good way of uh, dealing with these kinds of themes. And, you know, and I think that we could to be committed to use television and film as a way of, uh, you know, preaching this larger message about uh, the the good and the bad of the, in the public um, realm. So TV has always had the power to transform people's perceptions on a wide range of cultural and, and racial issues, and I think that to harness the power of television to transform the way that people think about religion. Yeah. I think that's a, an excellent point. And when you were talking, when the question came up, I immediately thought of a show like The Cosby Show, right? That uh, despite some of the issues that have come forward today <laughs> regarding Bill Cosby, at the time, The Cosby Show was transformative in how uh, all Americans, just regardless of race, kind of thought about representations of, of black Americans. And um, 
I'm biased, but I think Hindus and Muslims are really funny. Absolutely. You know, I think we do some really funny things. And I'm thinking almost of Hasan Minhaj's special, yeah. Homecoming, Homecoming King, King, where he lists out, he, he's a Muslim comic who marries a Hindu PhD something. And uh, he lists out all the differences between Hindus and Muslims. And it's really quite funny because we're not all that different. But uh, you do have a lot of Hindus and Muslims marrying each other. When you have a subcontinent a population of over a billion people, that's going to happen. Uh, and it, it no normalizes that. And I think the Cosby Show did that as well. I think that's a really great point about narrative. But I'm going to stop and let you guys No, no, I, I was going to say, say exactly. That, I mean, that two things there. And, uh, uh, one of the things that Reza said about fiction and narrative and the use of, of, of fiction. I mean, we know this as academics. So this brilliant uh, uh, book, unfortunately, by a posthumously by the Blessed Shahab Ahmed, you know, what is Islam that came out last year, talks about, you know, here's the Quranic story of, of, of uh, Joseph and the, and the woman who sort of tempts him, uh, Zuleika and the tradition. But Muslims never understood that, understood that story without Hafiz's take on that story, which completely subverts the sort of Quranic paradigm. And so the, the idea being that fiction is this incredibly useful kind of uh, uh, tool that, that religious folks use to talk about their own religious identity, you know, so, so there's that part. Two, it's the television, we haven't, I don't think we've raised this point yet, but uh, film and, and more so television, uh, completely imitative mediums. You know, if this show sells, we're going to do the same kind of show. They've got this show, that show's doing, okay, we need to have that kind of show, we'll do that, so, you know, we repeat that. And so if you've got sort of shows about religion that are actually doing well, you're going to have more of those kinds of shows, you're going to do more of those kinds of things. And it really was that sense of, as a, as a kid growing up in the 70s watching television, it was a lot of white folks, it wasn't brown folks, any kind of brown or black folks. You know, I remember Kavi Raz, the first regular Indian character, you know, a uh, doctor on St. Elsewhere, you know, because again, and so some of that is the trope of the Indian doctor, but some of that is reality. There's a lot of Indian doctors, you know, uh, there. And it's a, it's a thing that comes across other traditions. So we actually had this uh, really lovely moment where uh, Mr. Freeman had a hole in his schedule and was able to come to LMU. And it's one of those funny moments where I'm sort of sitting at, the, at the, my office, actually late on a Friday, and uh, the phone rings, and it's the sort of people who are doing the PR tour for the second season. And they're like, hey, Mr. Freeman's got a hole in his schedule on Thursday. Would you mention having him come to LMU on Thursday? I'm like, yes, yes, I am. We'd really like to have him come. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but we're going to you know, set it up. But when he came, he talked about you know, the fact that he's, he's privileged as not just an A-list actor, but running his own production company, be able to tell the stories that he wants to tell. And he said, look, I'm, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, that, you know, as a black man in America, if I, all I'd seen was television films, I would think that, you know, black people had made no major contributions to America. I know that's not right. So I'm going to start to change some of that kind of thing. Um, Octavia Spencer, you know, wonderful actress uh, on, uh, I mean, lots of different things, but, you know, uh, Hidden Figures. You know, she tells the story that when she got the script for Hidden Figures about the black women that helped do the math to put John Glenn in space, she thought it was fiction. She thought, this is a great story, but it's made up. Then she realized, oh, it's actually not fiction. This is actually real. And then thinking, I'm a black woman, and I don't know this story. Why would I expect other people to know this story? It's important to get this story out there. And so I think those things become you know, really important. And our ways of transforming folks, the Pew Forum says that 62% of Americans, when asked, don't know Muslim. So if you see a character on television, that may be like the only Muslim that you know, and it's problematic if it's terrorist number one or, you know, this kind of thing. But, the, but those can become really positive kinds of things too. 
Next question, please. Hi, uh, Christina Littlefield, Pepperdine University. I teach journalism and religion, and I used to be a, a reporter for higher education and religion. Um, and so I want to hear more about your experience speaking with journalists, both print, web, TV. And um, what, what I found ever speaking with academics is I had to really coach them that our audience is an eighth grade level, that most mainstream journalists are writing to basically 13-year-olds with attention issues, and that's the kind of level we're pitching at. So we do have to compress, we do have to uh, generalize, and I appreciate you guys uh, sharing that. I appreciate the panel for that reason. But that makes academics really gun-shy when they don't like how they've been generalized. So your tips for helping uh, get more academics to share publicly about religion. And then it also leads journalists to um, go after the same people over and over and over again because you know, okay, they're willing to talk to us, they get a gist of what we're doing because they get sick of trying to coach. So kind of the good, bad, and ugly of you've seen working with journalists, but how do we overcome the gun shyness? How do we get more scholars speaking about religious issues? Um, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take a first crack at that. Uh, first of all, I have heard some of my colleagues complaining about uh, religion journalists, how they don't want to talk to them because they get misrepresented. I've actually never felt that once. I, I can't think of a, I can't think of a time when I was interviewed and I felt that they really turned around what I had said. And I've talked to a lot of journalists, um, so um, so that's one um, response that I have. I really appreciate the, that um, that. Uh, that kind of work, but I also think it's really it's really a useful um, enterprise to try to actually think what you do want to say in a short amount of time, and it isn't just an annoyance. It's actually can be very clarifying. Oh, that's what my book is about. I never knew that until I tried to say it in two sentences, um, and so I mean I'm thinking now about I I was had some media training before I went on the, um, the Daily Show with Jon Stewart. Um, my press paid, Harper One paid for it because they wanted the book to sell. Um, I went on to talk about uh, religious literacy. And it was really fascinating. I mean, they said to me, okay, when you go on the show, uh, there's, there's uh, one step, you'll, you'll enter from the left side, and there's one step up, and then there's a chair in front of you, <laughs> and you should shake his hand before you sit down, and then you should sit down before you look at the audience, and then you should look at the audience, and then you should sit up straight instead of sitting back. Like, it was very specific. Right. Um, but the most interesting part, thing I got from the media people was they were saying, what do you want to say? And I started giving them the argument of my book, and they said, no, we know the argument of your book. Like, we're trained media professionals. We've read your book. We know what the argument is. We're not asking you the argument. We want to know what you want to say. Um, and I didn't know what I wanted to say. And then I talked to them about it, and, and they were like, well, is this what you want to say? Is that what you want to say? And then I was like, yeah, that's right. It's dangerous for the United States internationally if we don't know anything about religion. And the... The people in the White House and the State Department don't know that. That's a problem. We need to fix it, you know? Do the international stuff, Steve. That's good. Do the international stuff more than domestic stuff. That's better, you know, for this show. But it wasn't just, um, it wasn't just you know, selling more books. 
but it was also it was clarifying to me like oh yeah I never really realized that about my book you know I didn't I didn't know that was exactly what I was thank you for that thank you for clarifying that for me you know so these are people who are trained um at uh what do you call it you know just messaging and and I find that training has helped me with my undergrads you know to be be better at saying like okay you know, we just read William James, Varieties of Religious Experience. You know, what's the argument in, in 10 words? Um, and I can do that. I'm good at that, actually. I think that's one reason why I like uh, this genre, because I actually, my strengths actually go toward abstraction and compression and, and uh, generalization than in the other direction. Let me say one more thing about generalization. Generalization is not a bad thing. There's nothing bad about generalization. That's why we have the word overgeneralization. But we always generalize. Every word in the sentence I just said is a generalization. A chair is a generalization. A human is a generalization. We can't, we can't speak without generalizations. Language itself is, com you know, is composed of a series of generalizations. So um, there's no communication, and there's no intelligence, and there's no thinking, and there's no research um, without generalization. We all do it. Um, the question is the frame and, and whether too much, is, too much more is being lost than is being communicated in the context of a particular generalization. Um, so anyway, that's a shout out to, uh, it helps when you talk to journalists to think ahead of time and say, well, what do I want to say? What, what are the one or two things I want to say when this journalist is calling me about this story about the Bible Museum or something? Um, and in that case, I just say, talk to, talk to Canada because I, <laughs> I don't know anything about it. So uh, pick up on something that, that, that uh, Steve said, you know, very few of us are going to have that opportunity to have, you know, uh, media training paid for someone else. There are organizations here, like Auburn, Auburn Seminary for years was doing sort of media stuff, so that's something. I would encourage you to talk for faculty, and I'll get to your question specifically in a, in a second, to talk to folks in your theater arts department. You know, one of the best things I ever did was a, a program that, that uh, the chair of our theater arts program at, at uh, LMU, Kevin Wetmore, did called Teaching as Performance. You know, it was a really interesting kind of thing because I would come into my class and say, look, this is not Robin Williams and Dead Poet Society. You know, this is not what this class is going to be like. A, I don't have Robin's acting chops. B, more importantly, I don't have his writers. I'm writing this material myself. You know, there's that. So I understand that this is not meant to be entertaining. At the same time, if I walk in and don't make any eye contact and sort of mumble into my chest and I'm reading from notes and not looking at people, it's going to be ridiculous. So how do you, that performance aspect of it from a theater arts, you know, kind of thing, I think is great. Going back specifically to the question with journalists, and I think that, that's, that's a thing that you have to decide. Are you going to do this or not? How are you going to do it? I like doing it. People come back to me simply because, you know, I respond to their emails and phone calls because I understand that they have things called deadlines, which really are, you know, firm. One of the ways in which I have a little bit of control is sometimes we'll talk and then I'll say, okay, let me just send you a couple of sentences via email so you have this, so there isn't that danger of being A, misquoted or misinterpreted, and then you really deliberately do, you know, if I'm explaining this, you know, Sunni Shia issue in literally three sentences or maybe two sentences, because that's what we've got, what would those be? And to be able to sort of literally craft them and then send them off. And oftentimes, you get contacted by reporters who are in different places. And, and it's not it, my only claim to fame is I'm the last human being without a cell phone. And so I can't, you know, talk to folks in like on phones and text, but I can email you. 
And so oftentimes we'll have email conversations. And again, that gives you some level of control where here's the three sentences I said. So there's never an issue of, no, I did not say that. In fact, here's what I said. You know, on the phone, someone recording it or writing it down, there may be some things there. But if I've emailed you the, the one or two sentences, you know, you may take them out of context. That's a whole other question. But at least you're using the words that I gave you. Yeah, I would echo that. I think email is amazing. Um, not just, and once, once you've crafted your three sentence, four sentence statement, not only can you use that with whichever journalist contacted you, your university properly has a media relations department and they will push that out to the media if you want them to. So I'd say to anyone who wants to do this, cultivate a relationship with whoever's in charge of communications at your university. And if they don't know how to do this, and not every institution knows how to do this as well as every other institution, um, certainly you can be part of that educational process for them. Um, and so there's media relations. And I would say that I would say to journalists, they should contact the media relations team who will find someone within the university. I think the real challenge is getting scholars to realize that a week is not a reasonable turnaround time <laughs> when it comes to the news. Um, the amount, especially in the last week with the Bible Museum in our book, the amount of times I was in the United Kingdom, I would get emails from someone from ABC at 11 p.m. at night, and I'd say, sure, I can talk now. And then I, can, I, can I email you, can I talk to you in half an hour? And I would think, oh, does it have to be half an hour? But sure, fine, I'll stay awake longer. And that's just the deal. That's just what it is. It's, it's a whirlwind and being flexible, which is something that scholars aren't always good at. I think that's the way forward, that kind of educational process. Yes. Uh, my name's Ruben Lashley. Uh, so each of you kind of deal in, in a varied uh, medium, whether it be in documentary or film or on the news, uh, and you've all kind of addressed this idea, or at least spoken to this idea of having to work with producers, almost in this kind of sense of gatekeepering, uh, of creating kind of a monolithic representation of not just individual characters or individual races, but uh, the idea as a whole. I think, particularly for me, looking at, say, Charlton Heston's representation uh, in, in kind of the Moses piece was this one viewpoint of this is how religion is viewed. Um, do you see kind of within the within the academy we through a variety of publishers have the ability to kind of have a variety of voices presented do you see as we're shifting into a more widely liberalized accepted medium of uh, whether it's YouTube or Netflix or any of these other elements that allow people to kind of tell more stories that as we shift our way to the future kind of allow for a greater diversity of religious opinion and religious idea, whether that be in Christianity or Judaism, uh, Catholicism, like you said, or just representations of Hindus, that they're not all one general way, um, but are they shifting into kind of that reality in, in the coming decades? Um, I think that's already happening. I think that's a, a feature of uh, social media and YouTube and uh, the internet and especially probably cable television. You know, when I was growing up, there were three uh, TV stations and there was PBS, um, so there were four. Um, and if you couldn't get on to that, uh, those wavelengths, then you weren't visible um, in visual media except for in, you know, films. Uh, or home movies, you know. We, we made home movies, like four or five people would see those. But, but I think uh, that's a huge change, right? And, and so uh, 
all the time I have people tell me, you know, what's your favorite TV show? And I'll say, I've never even heard of that TV show. I mean, that wasn't possible when I was a kid. There were only any given hour, there were only three TV shows. So, you know, everybody watched Friends. At this, you know, you could talk about that. When I first started teaching at Georgia State uh, in the late 90s, you know, I could, I could talk about Friends with my students and they would have seen it. I mean, 85% of them would have seen it. And that's, it's just not true anymore. The only, the only thing it is true of is certain viral um, videos online. You know, 90% of my students have seen the double rainbow, you know, viral um, video, they have. But 90% of my students haven't seen any show, any, or even 50%, I would say, I would guess there's probably, you would know better. Is, is, there, is there a show that half my students will have seen? I don't think so, right? No. Yeah. No, and, 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 but there's no, no. shows that I think are like, you know, I was talking in a television course about The Wire, and one out of 30 students knew what The Wire was, forget about having seen it. You know, yeah, exactly. And so, so I think that that, that is a diffu that diffusion, right? I mean, um, even today, I mean, all this, uh, you know, all these um, examples you've given of uh, Muslim characters on TV, I, I didn't know about all those exa examples at all. I probably know of half of them. So, uh, so I think that that future is already here in terms of the capacity for all these multiple representations. But the issue is, how do you get the eyeballs to actually see it, right? And that's a real difficulty because, um, because there's so much of it, it's so hard to know. Um, it's so hard to get to a certain thing. And of course, that's all being curated for us, right? By Facebook and by Twitter and by YouTube. I mean, they have algorithms that tell us what to watch. And so that's tricky too. You know, wh what are the algorithms of the, uh, you know, the Facebooks and the Googles of the world telling us to see? And, you know, is that what we should be seeing? But I think in terms of the diffusion of material, it's, it's astounding. And uh, the only issue is, you know, the gatekeeping and the, and the algorithms. And I think that's all tricky. It's, so when I teach my religion and film classes, I always, and we have a traditional sort of 18 to 22 year old student population at uh, LMU, class of 30 students, you know, uh, there. I always ask him, so how do you watch these things? How do you watch TV? And it's amazing to me that maybe four of them actually have like a TV, meaning a television in their dorm for the rest of them. It's the Amazon, it's the Hulu, it's the cell phones, it's all that kind of thing. I always build in time, and I'm sure all of us do, to, to learn from them. And so it becomes, so in this, you know, we teach a 14-week semester. There's always two weeks where it's like, what do you guys watch? You tell me, and you sort of pick it, and we do it about them halfway through, because part of it is just saying to them, you know, a religious film is not just simply a film that has a religious character. It's easy to see why the Ten Commandments is a religious film. Why is Chris Nolan's, you know, Dark Knight Rises a deeply religious film? And why does this dialogue between, like, Bane and Batman have really interesting theological ramifications? You know, that's what I want them to get to. But once they've done a little bit of that, then they bring me, exactly as Steve said, shows I've never heard of, movies I've never would have thought to watch, but they're really interesting to do that kind of thing. And I think that that's it because there's such a wide... Uh, platform where you don't need the the TV or the cable or the box or the wire. You can literally watch. I mean, I can't because I don't own one, but you can watch it on your smartphone. I would agree that we're sort of already there, um, and I would say that speaking to the media as religion scholars now something people expect. Whether you have a YouTube channel or you have a Twitter account or whatever it is, this kind of outreach, this very visual set of media. Um, 
this is now expected. There's something I, I've been thinking about saying since I got this invitation, and I don't know where the opportunity was to say it, so I think I'm just gonna say it here. Um, we're all obviously supporters of public outreach, but I wanna say that for a certain class of people, and before more of them leave this room, I wanted to say this. I want to I want to sound a note of caution that people may not have thought about. I think we're all familiar, and it's sad that he's not here anymore virtually, with the amount of backlash okay. Razor Aslan got from scholars in particular. But I also want to note as the um, only female contributor to this panel, although obviously I appreciate your presence as moderator. Um, when you are a woman and you're on television, you may not intend to, but you have opened yourself up for excavation in ways that apparently men have not. Um, I'm not just talking about if you comment on religion in the media, chances are you're going to get a death threat at some point. And yeah, has anyone here not gotten a death threat? Um, I've gotten a lot of rape threats. I get a lot of commentary on my appearance. And that commentary is not exclusively in the public domain. I've been, I've been stunned at the extent to which scholars rehearse this language. And I put that out there not to say don't do it, but just to say know that it's there. Know that even though we're in this era where we all appreciate that this is really important at this point in history, know that you open yourself up to scrutiny. It's, I, I don't like the language of open yourself up, even though I introduced it. <laughs> um, know that other people will take liberties that you thought people hadn't taken since the 1950s. Sorry. Um, no, that's really great, and I agree with that, and I, I'm grateful for you saying that. I'll, I'll add to that a sort of corollary, which is that um, I think I think people have different uh, different talents, you know, and um, there's a lot of, I mean, my colleague who won't talk to the media, I think that's totally legitimate. I mean, I think that, uh, and similarly, sim I mean, I spend time writing books for general audiences for the most part now, and, uh, and I think that's a good use of my talents, but I think for other people it would be a really poor use of their talents, and they're much better at writing uh, scholarly books or articles that are addressed to their colleagues and to their fields and um, not wasting their time calling back journalists uh, because they might just be frustrated by that. So I, I think, uh, I know Kennedy you said at the beginning, you thought in some ways this is something we should all do. And I, I note that when you apply for money from the National Science Foundation, there is uh, a section that talks about the, the dissemination to the public. Isn't it ironic that in the humanities we, we don't typically have that? Right, that um, we t we think of science as sciences as so specialized, such specialized fields, and yet um, I don't believe if you apply for money from the NEH that you need to talk about uh, how broader publics are going to uh, to have access to your work. Um, so I so I think um, I think there's a real synergy between people who do more public understanding of religion and people who do more. Uh, writing in religious studies for religious studies scholars. And of course, um, myself, I draw all the time on specialized uh, research. I couldn't do what I do without it. Um, but so I would add that. You may not just not want 
to have people on social media attacking you. You may just you may just have different skill sets than other people have, and and uh, and that's that's great, and it's important to recognize. Are there any other questions or? Yes, go ahead. Hi, I'm Katie Merriman from UNC Chapel Hill. Um, I came halfway through, so my apologies if you talked about this, um, but I wanted to ask a question about attention that I feel doing a lot of public engagement and I'm planning on being part of a project that will be pre-made, so not kind of on the spot, about vulnerable, po vulnerable populations and exposure. Because um, what I, I feel sometimes for my work, and mine's mostly focused on Islam in America, that part of my work of, I think you just left, but helping people to understand things um, with wider breadth um, in the diversity beyond just the basics is bringing attention to things that aren't the top three details that are mentioned. Um, but in doing that, sometimes you're bringing in communities that don't normally get a lot of media attention, and because of who they are, it might bring them attention they might not be ready for, not because they're incapable, but because they don't have these platforms. So just to give one example, you think about talking about Ahmadi Muslims, and all of a sudden, you know, people saying, why are you including them as Muslims? So anyway, that back and forth, especially when, when we're talking about the media, unless like an ethnographic account, it's harder to be collaborative as much um, when you're the one facing the media, creating this project, and they don't have the time or the resources you know, to be there with you to create this. So how do you deal with that tension of doing the good work of bringing visibility, but then being attentive um, to that community's uh, safety, well-being, et cetera? No, I, I think that that's a great question. Um, so Mahershala Ali, who I talked about, you know, the uh, first African-American uh, Muslim to win a, a, a Oscar is, Ahmadiyya. And I've had people say, well, he's not a real Muslim, he's Ahmadiyya. It's exactly that kind of uh, thing there. Um, so I think, it, it all, again, it depends on how you're working and, and where you're working. So for example, with uh, Story of God, there was an episode called The Chosen One. And you know, so talking about that kind of notion of election. And fortunately, they got in touch with me like right from the beginning, like even before they started doing the kinds of, of things. So I was able to actually pitch some ideas to them, a couple of which they used, most of which they threw away, uh, the ones that involved me being on camera more, uh, typically. Uh, but you know, for the chosen one, I'm like, well, what about, what if we do, you know, because most people, of course, most Sunni Muslims, of course, would say, well, who's the chosen one in Islam? Well, of course, it's the prophet, you know? Like, well, what if we did Ali, or, or what if we did, you know, um, one of the, uh, imams in the Shia tradition and where that fits in and that's an interesting way of talking about stuff that doesn't get a lot of of press and so the uh, the uh, part of the episode that was focused on Islam centered around Ashura and the devotions there which is a really nice kind of way of seeing yeah, you tend not to see a lot of images of Ashura you know on on television uh, there and so I, I was proud of myself which is ridiculous to say for you know suggesting that and doing that kind of thing but how can you do it in a way that that actually you know makes sense to the integrity of what they're trying to do on the screen because it's not it's not my thing and I mean, again I'm sorry we've lost Reza because he's one of the rare folks that's, that actually like that's his show he's able to do it whereas most of us are just sort of consultants at some very basic level some a little more detailed levels on these kinds of projects. But I think being able to help people think outside the traditional boxes. 
Uh, do you guys have any other comments or questions for each other? No? Well, on that note, it is 3 p.m. And so thank you so much for coming here. Thank you so much to our panelists and to uh, Reza as well. I'll email him later privately. And so thank you. Thank you, Sharina. Thank you.